June 7th, 2022. Let's talk tonight at the third class of these classes that I entitled Forget Me Not. Now, if you missed the first two classes, you're okay, because I'll quickly and very briefly summarize the basic concept that we've been discussing, and in turn, you'll be able to jump right in and understand the theme and develop it a bit further with us tonight. So first and foremost, what we've been discussing with that name, Forget Me Not, is how in relationships in general, in our relationship to God, in our understanding of life, of knowledge, of development of thought, and anything and everything that we search for within it, a certain life and vibrancy, there's an importance of moving past a rigidity. Sometimes we have this tendency of getting stuck in something as several very brief and almost uh, two practical examples. Um, I'll just uh, mention to you, uh, more than once people have remarked to me, I'm not up to this point in life yet, and some of the people in the audience are not even at the first stage of it, but sometimes uh, people will have, a, a couple will have a child or several children, and they put, over the course of their relationship with one another, all of their energies into that child or children in raising them. And as a result, those many years in which they're developing their children, their energies, their conversations, what they hold in common, the, the spouses, is all about the children. The children are older and grown up and move out of the house, and the relationship then suffers because the relationship has been static. Yes, there's been challenges along the way. Certainly, there have been difficulties. How do we decide? What should we do with our children in this circumstance? But amongst the two, amidst their relationship, there was no development. They weren't searching and seeking more in the context of their own communion, of their own relationship. And as a result, they became static and almost forgot how to develop further. In terms of our own understanding, again, almost a too practical example. But sometimes in the context of Talmud Torah in classes or personal study, People become comfortable with, I like that type of class. I'm comfortable with that material. I'm not a Gemara guy, I've heard more than once. And as a result, I can't and wouldn't move you away from what you're comfortable with, the Tanakh, the Halakha, whatever the circumstances. But sometimes over the course of time, and more than once people have expressed this to me, it becomes stale. They lose a certain passion in the study. What happened? How'd they lose the passion? Why have they fallen out of it? The answer is because they lost that vibrancy, that they became static, they became stuck in place. As a result, as counterintuitive as it perhaps appears at first glance and sounds almost wrong, the forgetting, and by forgetting, I don't mean it, certainly not in the negative and uh, detrimental fashion, but forgetting what I was so comfortable with. So to speak, what I knew already is important so that I develop and grow further. Now again, that'll be developed and understood in every context of your life. But the name of the class, as we stressed in the last class, is Forget Me Not. Because ultimately speaking, even when I'm seeking the further development, even while I'm keeping the life in my understanding of God, in my understanding of Torah, in my understanding of that person or that relationship with myself or others, there's a certain structure and context which needs to be in place. If it's not in place, putting it in the Judaism realm, 
It means it's reconstruction, reconstructionist Judaism. It means I've broken from the past entirely. I'm no longer connected to Torah Misinai. So it means there's a remembrance, there's a zikaron, a memory of Ma'amad Har Sinai, of the Masoret. And within that Masoret, over the course of time, we as a nation and as individuals have experienced moments in time periods over the course of our history and in our personal history and remembrances where it's been important for us to quote unquote forget the examples we gave in that context from a national perspective, a Judaism perspective, was a women's involvement in halacha and in Torah and mitzvot. We talked about Zionism, religious Zionism. Each of those are two large examples amongst many in which if you were to just turn back the clock a hundred years or so, you'd find that we were stuck in place. Women have no role in Judaism with regards to Talmud Torah and perhaps observance of certain mitzvot that are almost the norm today. And how are we doing that? It's against the Masoret. The answer is a quote-unquote a certain forgetfulness. We moved past what we were stuck in in order to keep in place with who we want to be while keeping in mind who we are. There's a forget-me-not, while at the same time a certain healthy forgetfulness. That's what we've developed over the course of several classes. And at the very end of the second class, last week, we read from the Pasuk in source number one, Rashi in source number two, and the Mishnah Perkei Avot in source number three. So very briefly reminding you of the best for me analogy at that juncture, at this juncture, with regards to how I envision at least this healthy dichotomy, this healthy dynamic in which on the one hand, we're bridging and connected to that past, while at the same time, so to speak, experiencing it with the coordinates of today, of our own lives, of our national identity in this world. So there's the pasuk in the Torah, in Parashat Vayv Hanan, here in source number one. Moshe remembers Ma'amad Har Sinai. These words, these matters, God spoke to you at the mountain, from within the fire, from within the cloud and the fog, kol gadol velo yasaf. Now the word kol, as we did in an earlier class this year, is a very important word in the context of Ma'amad Har Sinai, in the context of Torah, our understanding of God, and so on and so forth. Many of those circumstances that can't be put to form in any way, shape, or form. When we talk about potential, we refer to kol. But over here, the specific words we focused on were the lo yasaf, what does it mean lo yasaf? So Rashi mentions two interpretations. Either lo yasaf milashon sof, it didn't have an end, or milashon lehosif, it didn't continue. Of course, opposite interpretations. But the fact that it didn't have a sof, it was unceasing. He quotes that from Unculus, velapasik, it never ended. What's that telling us? It seems to be describing how Ma'amad Sinai, what we heard there is eternal. It's an imminent voice which is with us at all times. There's a particular Musar which we've developed and discussed on other occasions and that is the difficulty but the necessity in life of distilling all those external sounds in order to listen to carefully the sound of God which to a certain extent is there. It's presence, just difficult to hear. But for our purposes, what we focused on specifically in this context was how that voice 
is that sound is still with us. And as a result, the Mishnah Perkei Avod says, in Bioshua ben Levi's name, Bechol Yom Bayom, Bat Kol Yoseet, Mehar Chorev. There's a sound which emanates, comes out from Har Chorev on every day during our existence today and yesterday and tomorrow. Which means to say, the analogy goes as follows, the same way B'nai Yisrael at Har Sinai heard this call and interpreted it according to the coordinates and circumstances of their life then, so too we do today. That means to say there's a forget-me-not dynamic. We're still hearing the same call. It's not a new call. But alternatively, it's a forget-me to a certain extent because we're now defining it by who we are today. Now, along those lines, over the course of the last couple of days, I came across something that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs wrote. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, at least it's printed in his book, Covenant and Conversation, on Sefer Bimidbar. It's on Parashat Bimidbar, if I'm not mistaken. That's why I was reading it. And so in the, in the context of discussion of whatever he's discussing, he develops the idea of this unique quality and characteristic of Judaism. And he describes how Judaism has in the Torah the strict prohibition about making images, or timunah, or pesel matseva, anything having to do with a vision, a sight of God. Judaism instead focuses on hearing, on transmitting through word, it's the, it's the religion of listening carefully. How then can he be encountered? In contrast to other religions, Rabbi Sachs is saying, Judaism says, don't make an image of God. Don't envision God. Don't realize God in any physical fashion. So then how do we find God? In Judaism, for the first time, revelation became a problem. Right? He writes that as a result, we had a difficulty. Keep in mind, uh, this is a, a very real difficulty. This is a difficulty, I think, each of us experience on an re- everyday, everyday basis. Each of us have this, this challenge, but I can't feel God, but I don't see God. When the gods are to be found in nature, they are close, but if God is beyond nature, beyond the universe itself, then he is vast beyond our imagining and infinitely distant. The answer Judaism gave is radical. God is close but encountered not in things seen, but in words heard. Other civilizations after the ellipsis gave rise to visual cultures, while Judaism is supremely a culture of the ear, of words, speech, listening, interpreting, understanding, heeding. Now, if you're paying attention to his description, it's very, very spot on with regards to what we're discussing. Judaism, by definition, we're expanding his message a bit, but keeping in line with it, focuses not on something that's stuck in place, as he'll say. That's a picture. Alternatively, it's something that we need to constantly be interpreting. I'm here. Torah Shabal Peh is a prime example for this point. Judaism does not suffice with a Torah Shabal which is seen, felt, and perceived with our eyes, but either a Torah Shabal Peh tradition, which is absolutely necessary. We call that, in our classes, the post-first luchot, Right, whereas first luchot, nothing's forgotten. It's so to speak all Torah shbichtav, even the baalpeh. Torah baalpeh is after the shattering. This created for Jews and Judaism a distinctive phenomenology. Phenomenology means a way of interpreting things. Not my word this time. It's Rabbi Sachs. All right, we all love him. You can't get angry at the big words of 
he that he uses a unique way of experiencing the world right so there's a phenomenon means the way we interpret what we're experiencing you see he in contrast to me he translates it right afterwards way of experiencing the world i wouldn't do so seeing said hans jonas is immediate but hearing requires interpretation that's what it's all about that's what we've been discussing this forgetfulness is what makes it uh, forces us to interpret which in turn gives it life which in turn makes it personal, which in turn... Certainly, it's a vigadal in the Torah. It's uh, every one of, uh, you know, what it brings to mind, ironically for me, is how Zachoret Yom HaShabbat LeKadesho, right? And the Torah mentions in Parashat Yitro, in Perik Yotet, one of the Ten Commands, Zachoret Yom HaShabbat LeKadesho, the knee-jerk response to Zachor. If I would say to you, how do you remember something? You say, with your mind. The words of the rabbis in Masechet Pesachim and Davkov Chet is, Zochreu Bidvarim. You need to remember it with words. Zachoret Asher Asalecha Amalek, with words. What's up with words? Well, yeah, I could use my mind. I could close my eyes and envision something. Absolutely not. The rabbinic interpretation, the Masoret, on all of those, Along the lines of by definition, is going to have to be passed down in such a fashion, right? You know what I'm saying? So it can't be my paradigm. These are even better in that respect. But yes, that's what Judaism, that's what Torah is all about. It's about not sufficing with the knowledge and the visual perception of God. As a matter of fact, denying the ability. And instead, and what we're stressing, giving a certain life to it, much as in your own relationship with a spouse, a friend, and certainly with God, by definition, when you're not stuck on this is what it should look like, as, as a result of that, something is dynamic and changing and causes the two or the three or the single or whoever is involved to constantly be questioning and determining how do I fit this into our relationship? How can we include something new? How can I understand when I hear a dog barking, writes Rabbi Sachs, for example, I hear the bark, not the dog. To know that it was a dog producing the sound, I have to use inference. I'm not stuck. This is my words. I'm not stuck. I have to interpret that. Sight can be instantaneous. That is what is captured by a photograph. But sound, communication, speaking and listening are necessarily extended in time. You cannot freeze a sentence. So a culture based on listening rather than seeing encounters God not in timeless moments. That might be Christianity. That might be pagan mythology and so forth or pagan practices and interpretations. But in, but, uh, but in time, which is to say, in history. That's the Jewish approach to this matter. Again, very much seen through the prism and perspective we've been developing, very much in line with what we've been describing. That's what it's all about. But I'll pause for a second and remind you, and I did just a moment ago, Victor, tell you that the first luchot were, so to speak, at least in the Midrash's eyes, where we were stuck, where everything was going to be remembered. And in fact, and I was very excited as I noticed this, in fact, the Pisukim have the most strange reference, at least in the eyes of the rabbis, with regards to the first luchot. It's in source number five in Parashat Yitro, Vechol Ha'am, the entire nation sees the sound. Now, Ibn Ezra and the Mefarshe HaPeshat say that the senses, as mentioned in the Torah, can be mixed up from time to time. The senses are seen as, uh, as, as, as emanating from one singular foundation. As a result, we'll mix it up. But Rashi, quoting from the rabbis, interprets it differently. This is a one-time occasion. They saw sounds. 
not so hard to envision seeing sounds any longer because we have screens which give us pictures and sounds at the same time. I remember that was a revelation for me when I realized that. It was like it was the strangest thing in the world. And then someone said to me, what are you talking about? It's all the time. Anytime you watch something, anytime you see something, like that's what you're seeing. You're seeing sounds. But what he's describing, Rashi, what in turn the Pasuk might be referring to, is a moment of prophetic revelation to the people on the level of Nivuah being seen. And that's a being stuck in it. Now there's a full understanding. When I see it, a picture's worth a million words. I don't need to hear anything. But there's a problem with that. The fact that you have the picture and there's no interpretation any longer. The fact that I saw the sound instead of hearing the sound, I'm stuck in place. That's going to cause me and those who come after me to lose a certain sense of, well, where am I going with this? I feel like I'm trapped in the past on this. In fact, if you pay attention, here's where I'd like to take this class now, to the difference between, and we've done a class on this, just two or three ago, we talked about the difference between Moshe Rabbeinu and the people, did we not, Elliot, right? Moshe, that man of God, and now we're going to understand it along the same lines, but this time we'll portray it through the prism of what we're discussing. Moshe can't, so to speak, see eye to eye, no pun intended, with the people. Moshe is on a different platform after the giving of the second Lachot, at the very least. It's in two weeks from now, Parashat, Parashat Beha'alotecha, at the very end, where Miriam and Aharon speak Lashon Hara about Moshe, and they're criticized. And as they're being criticized, God turns to them and says, you don't know who you're talking about. This brother of yours, Moshe, is so different than any other prophet. Why so? says source number seven, Moshe circumvents, Moshe goes around any of those, or, or better yet, he goes directly at the source. Moshe is connected to the source. Moshe's prophecy is one of vision. It's Timunat Hashem Yabit, which means to say his ability then, and we've discussed this and we're going to discuss it again tonight, his ability then to transmit it to the people is not so simple because he's on a whole, altogether different uh, vision, and, and this time I say it literally, uh, than the people. The people are forced to interpret. Moshe is getting it direct. Now, if again, if you keep this in mind, it's for that reason that we need, and it's a terrible thought, but we need the death of Moshe. If Moshe was there, it means we're directly connected to the source. It means there is no forgetfulness. You might recall the Gemara Masechet Temurah, the death of Moshe, the forgetfulness of those halachot, with Othniel ben Knaz, bringing them back. That's what we discussed two weeks ago, three weeks ago, whatever it was. But again, that's for this reason. Moshe is so connected to the source. There's no room for that forgetfulness any longer. I then will, as a result, go back to, and, and Jacob raised his eyes last week when I read this source, in source number eight, two sources, and the, amongst many others, and try to interpret them and understand them along these lines. Source number eight is that story we read about, Bili Ezeb ben Horkanus. If you're called Bili Ezeb ben Horkanus, is so to speak, that Moshe personality. But the word specifically, uh, let me pause for a second to catch you up to date with regards to what, what we're developing. We first summarized, we then kind of, reframed it and understood that the description we're given to, giving to this forget-me-not type of theme is one in which I hear as opposed to seeing. Seeing means it's all there. 
If you look at the table in front of you, it's all laid out. No, there's no mistaking it. I might wrongfully interpret it. Much more difficult than if I heard something or it's being, as a result, passed down through hearing, which is what Judaism is all about. Moshe is the contrast to that. Moshe is the one who hears it directly. As a result, and we bring you back to those classes, Moshe, quote-unquote, needs to, at a certain point, be lost. It's a terrible thought. It's, it's a tragic expression. But I think we know this in our own relationships as well. A child needs to move out of their parents' home because in their parents' home, at a certain point, there's no longer room for them. And the reason I say that is because they get stuck in place and time. The parents now are their source. And as they're growing up, the parents continue to be the source. If they're not distancing themselves and allowing for the child to quote-unquote forget, to rebel, to move out, then the child is losing life. The child is no longer an individual. As a result, you might recall the Midrash that's over through Bili Ezer, Rabban Yohanan ben Zakai, his rabbi, is convincing him to say divrei Torah, to say Hidushim. And the statement is, you can be like a spring. You don't need to be like a borsud, like the, 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 um, the pit which is, has the, the walls which are plastered. Rather, you can be like a gushing, rushing, flowing spring, a ma'ayan. And if you do so, kachata, yachol nomar divrei Torah, yeter mimashikibel misinai. Those are the almost heretical words there in Pekeh de Rebili And Jacob wanted to Kill me when I read them last week, but I pointed to the source. I pointed to the page. Nobody, if you were listening to it, you didn't see it taking place. You didn't hear. You didn't hear it taking place. Better yet, but I mean that. That's. But I, I, we we talked about it a little bit afterwards. You have to take it with a grain of salt. The statement is: you can say better and more than what was said at Har Sinai. I said, okay, he means on that level. We're not talking heretically per se. Now it's not only this midrash. There are other midrashim which have similar wording which are a little bit troubling at first, unless you take the whole picture into account, or the whole story into account, if we want to keep our pun online. In line, the Pesiktan, source number nine, has this following statement, Devarim shelo niglu lemoshe, it should say, my typo, niglu Akiva v'chaverav. It says that matters which were not revealed to Moshe were revealed to Akiva and his friends and the other Talmudic Chachamim of his generation. That's a crazy line. Again, I'll bring it further and tell you that we mentioned this source number 10 at the very end of the class last week where Moshe Rabbeinu in this, uh, the vision of the rabbis, this Midrash, goes into the classroom and Be'akiva doesn't know what they're talking about and as a result, Tashash Kohol, he starts to get weakened until he hears one of the students ask Rabbi Akiva, how do you know this? says Halakha Moshe Misinai. One second, what does that mean? Moshe didn't know the Halakha Moshe Misinai? So it's all of these descriptions together, and I mentioned it briefly last week. I quoted to you this week, um, well, you'll see from several, but in, in, in order to develop and understand it, I saw, uh, and, and the concept will develop on our own, I saw the following idea in source number 11. Now, I saw it cited from the, the Leshem. Leshem was, uh, it was actually the grandfather, if you know the name, Rav Yashiv. His name was Rabbi Shalomo Eliashiv. Uh, it was a, a true Kabbalist who wrote prolifically, and uh, I, I haven't read much of his stuff. I actually didn't even read this. I saw it cited, but I'm going to describe it to you through 
through the prism of what we've been discussing, he says, here's how it works. Imagine a person who's on an altogether different platform than you. And we've met those sorts of people. You've met, I mean, imagine talking to Einstein. I'm sorry, Lehavdil. It's the easiest way for us to understand it. Mamash Lehavdil, because I'm going to be comparing Einstein to Moshe. Mamash Lehavdil. However, imagine talking to Einstein. I imagine myself, could, I couldn't hold a straight conversation with him. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Einstein's not that person. There have been people in my life. I've met some brilliant people in my life. They're in a completely different world and realm with regards to their thought. You're thinking the wrong person. Anyway, that being the case, you have this conversation with them and they, they can't relate it to uh, terminologies or, um, or, or real life examples or anything in the realm and domain of what you're thinking. Which means to say they might have in mind the same thing that you can then repeat but they can't even, forget about the fact that they can't say it like that. They can't envision it like that. The reason is because you've debased it. You'll repeat it to them and say, yeah, I guess that's the cheaper way of saying it, so to speak. Coming but up I was a heard in shul when the rabbi is talking and you kind of dumb it down to, to share it with your family. Exactly. So you heard the rabbi's speech in the, in the synagogue. You understood it, but it was so conceptual. You came home, you wanted to teach it to your children, and you had to bring it down. Now, by definition, when the rabbi was speaking conceptually, it's already a little bit more pure and pristine. You've already lost a little bit by bringing it down. So to speak, that's the difference between Moshe and the people. And, and it's, it's, it's a crazy thought for how far so. It's to the extent that Moshe's mind, Moshe's comprehension, Moshe's understanding is beyond even the words of the Torah. Sure, he repeats the words of the Torah to the people, but he's so connected to the source. He's so distant from that course, this world existence, that as a result, Rabbi Akiva and his students and the people thereafter, they'll discover those messages in the same words that Moshe passed down to them, but Moshe couldn't see in those words. Why not? Because Moshe was in that conceptual realm. Moshe was in the at the source realm dimension. He was the speech, but beyond the speech, he was the spark of wisdom. He was the connectedness to God all the way up there. And as a result, as a result, to the extent that Rabbi Akiva, they'll explain the Pasuk in the Torah, for Moshe it doesn't even fit the Pasuk in the Torah. Now, why do I mention in our context? Again, because that's the beauty, ironically, of the Torah. Yes, the Torah is for me and you and the brilliant people before us and after us who are far beyond our understanding. But when it comes down to it, the Torah is for our interpretation as human beings, as a people, as a nation, and as individuals. And as a result, we have the capability of making it relevant to us through its words. If the Torah was the Moshe thought of Torah, if it's what we'll see in a moment what the Mekubalim refer to as Chokhmah, that spark of thought, then it's distant from me and you. Then that's what we call history. That's what we call vision. We have lots of words for this now. The shattering of the Luchot, the forgetfulness, so to speak, moves us beyond that, moves us into a domain in which we need to talk about it which we need to interpret it, and which we need to come home and tell that story to our children in order for it to be understood to them and a living entity amongst them. 
in order to portray this a little bit further, and you'll have to forgive me, another Sachs, he happens to be, I think, a distant relative. His name was Oliver Sachs. He's a, a neurologist who passed away some years ago. He's a, a prolific writer as well. He wrote this book called Seeing Voices. Seeing Voices is a book on deaf people. He had a, a full description and understanding of deaf people, and he wrote a lot about them. This is in a footnote on page 147. So I'll just start, uh, really, we just need to read two of the, of, of the quotes, and then, and then the punchline. First quote over here, he's, he's quoting two, uh, two well-known thinkers and philosophers, Schopenhauer and Vygotsky. And he mentions, uh, first quoting from Schopenhauer, he says, thoughts die the moment they are embodied by words. Okay, you got that? A thought is a thought. It's pristine, it's pure. The second you put it in words, give it your example, Victor, the second you came home and told it to your children, the thought was lost. I mean, I know that, that, that feeling. It took a long time in my own life to be able to talk with stories and speeches. I wanted thoughts. I didn't want to embody it in a story. The second it's a story, now it lost the ability. I always used to say, I want to educate the people. I want them to apply it to their own lives. Of course, I was delusional in thinking that they were going to A, understand it, and then B, apply it. But as a result, but, but that's the idea. What he's saying is there's a certain tragedy. The second becomes words. He says Vygotsky writes the same idea. Words die as they bring forth thought. If I use words and I inspire you to thought, the words are gone. So to speak, the words, so to speak, the story, the, the words and the transmission of it is what gives it that body, the Pesukim and the Torah, so to speak. It's when you go from Moshe to call it Torah, Torah of Akiva, you lost that pristine thought of beforehand. But says Oliver Sacks, but you're missing another point. He says, but if you think it's all about the thoughts, if you think that you're going to stay, and here's the critical line for us, with the Moshe domain, if you think that Torah will be just in the mind without our stories and speech and forgetfulness and application and interpretation, then you're mistaken. He talks thereafter about people who lacked the ability to speak. And he says, if you lack the ability to speak, it's been scientifically and psychologically proven your ability to think clearly and cogently and have a process of thought and cognition is lost as well, which means to say as human beings. That's right, if you're an angel, if you're a computer, you might not need language. You can just process and you can have thought and data. If you're a human being, you need to process it. And by definition, as much as, quote-unquote, that Moshe realm is an ideal realm, it's not possible. We need the forgetfulness. We need to be talking it and hearing it and interpreting it for ourselves. That's the theme of these classes, which gets developed further and further again. I bring you back to a Midrash that we mentioned in an earlier class again. And now we'll understand it at a greater depth. The Midrash in Masechet Nida. If you recall the baby when it's in the womb of the mother. The baby when it's in the womb of the mother is learning the whole Torah. And listen to the words of the Midrash. There's a lit candle and the baby sees from one side of the world to the next. Listen to those words again. The baby sees from one side of the world to the next. Stop for a second. The baby in that moment is the Moshe Rabbeinu. The baby in that moment is the embodiment of connectedness to source. 
It's static, it's stationary, it hasn't engaged in this world. Of course that's what it is. Of course you can imagine the best you and I can do at imagining a human being who doesn't need forgetfulness, who doesn't need to apply it as a human being who's separated. Doesn't make sense, deal? That makes a lot of sense. And the second the baby comes into the world, says the Midrash, the Malach comes and hits it on its mouth because now it's going to be talking because now it's a human being because now as a human being it's no longer about sight if we're doing this right you're no longer going to be that stuck in the past stories that we've talked about at the beginning of last class where you got stuck in those moments and as a result weren't able to live in this world you're now talking and hearing and interpreting it's along the lines of what we quoted from Maharal but we now understand it I think at a greater depth. It's the words, ultimately speaking, that difference between Moshe and us, Or HaChayim HaKadosh, in source number 14, in his commentary to Sefer Vayikra and elsewhere, in Perek Yod Gimel, Pasuk Lamed Zayim. This is, as I recall, quoted from earlier Mikubalim as well. The, the idea, again, being that the difference between Moshe and us in terms of those midrashim that talk about us being able to understand Torah, quote-unquote, better than him, is not because we're greater than him. It's because we're more human than him. And as a result, Torah, so to speak, was a detriment for him. Or it was something that would, would impede an absolute comprehension. If you're connected to the source, if I have a chip in my mind, I don't need to be hearing it from others. It's in my mind. I don't need to hear it and interpret it. It's, it, it is who I am. We as human beings, alternatively, need to read words and letters and storylines and laws and interpret them accordingly. So it's not speaking about us being greater than him by interpreting Pesukim in ways that he didn't. If anything, it's talking about us being more human than him. There's that paradox where the more human you are, the more interpretive you can become, and you must be. The more human you are, put it in our words, the more forgetful you must be. The more you need to be separated, and you are separated from the source, in order to then make it applicable to yourself. Along these lines, and I'll just bring you very briefly, uh, through the Pesukim in, in Parashat Bereshit, you know, no good class could end without good Bereshit Pesukim. You might notice that uh, the Pesukim describe that when uh, Adam Harishon is placed in the Gan, God brings all the animals uh, to Adam in order to name them. We did a class on giving names, on how to give names, and so on and so forth this year. But listen to the specific and particular word in the Pesukim. God, God, so to speak, is looking to see what Adam names the animals. It's already a reference of sight in Bereshit. But wait, there's God's sight throughout the days of creation. And then there's Adam and Hava. And the Nahash tells them, if you eat from this tree, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. God, of course, is all about sight. God doesn't interpret. God doesn't forget. It's all laid out in front of him. And as a result, the Pasuk says, She sees, but she uses her sight wrongfully. And their eyes indeed are opened, but what happens right afterwards? It's the most amazing segue because it doesn't segue the way you thought. You'd say, now they see something. What happens right afterwards? Vayishme'u et kol Adonai Elohim mitalech bagam hayom. They transition from sight 
to hearing. Much as Am Yisrael at Har Sinai go from sight, which is unsustainable as human beings. You can't be a human being who's living his life, quote unquote, with absolute sight. You can't be a human being without forgetfulness. And so to Adam and Chava go to hearing thereafter. The Gemara Masechet Hagiga, along those same lines, and we mentioned this on more than one occasion as well, describes how Adam Arishon before sinning could see from one side of the world to the other side of the world. Don't take it too literally, just like you shouldn't take the baby in the womb too literally, but you should understand what that means. Adam Arishon was connected to the source. He was far from being a normal human being. We need to hear. We need to listen. We can't have images which define for us truth any longer. We need to instead use our imaginative capacity. It's better, in, the, in this analogy, it's better to hear what the class was about from someone who attended the class than to listen to the recording of the rabbi director. That's an interesting thought, but no, because I'll remind you the class is called Forget Me Not. So in last class, I reminded you it's a careful balance and a very sensitive line. You need to be connected to the source. You need to be within that structure and framework while at the same time interpreting it on your coordinate. If you're disconnected and hearing as a result potential lies or shakir, so you're far from it. Hear, hear it, listen to it on recording and then talk and then repeat it With based on how you understand it. The class That's right. I once read, it's not going to relate to many of you, but it's nonetheless, it relates to me. It's, rabbis of mine had these rabbis in turn. I once read a story about Rab Chaim Soloveitchik's son. He was known as the Brisker of Ravelvel Soloveitchik. And he had a conversation with someone else about a, a great student of his, of his father. His great student of his father, his name was Rabbi Baruch Bar Leibowitz. Anyway, if you look at their Hidushe Torah, that's the Brisker of and Rabbi Leibowitz, they have a very different style. Even when they quote their rabbi, father and rabbi, they quote him very differently. Briskorov quotes him in one way, usually very simple and easy to interpret. And Rabbach Berlebo, it's always is more abstract and disconnected. And your mind say they just had different personalities. I once read that someone asked the Briskorov, why are you so different? He said, I'll tell you why we're so different. He said, Rabbach Berlebo, he really got it. He said, what do you mean he really got it? By the way, I just thought about this story now. It's so perfect to the class. He says, what, what do you mean? He said, we would go to the same class. We would hear my father speaking. We'd walk out and we weren't fully certain what he said. I would have the audacity, I was his son, not so much audacity, knock on the door and say, Dad, or Tati probably, could you repeat it to me so that I can understand it better? And I got it directly from the source. And as a result, I didn't develop it further. I didn't interpret it according to my own understanding. I didn't then open the Gemara and the Rishonim and say, oh, now I understand this, and maybe that's what he meant with this, and I can interpret it. Alternatively, his interpretation was a little disconnected. They needed to hear it from Reb Chaim. They needed to. If they weren't hearing it from him, so then they're potentially hearing Shekhar. But they then needed to repeat it. They then needed to apply it to their own lives, to their own interpretations of those sugyot and halachot. Along these lines, I'll just bring you a bit further in terms of, or maybe somewhat linear at this point. The Gemara Masechet Ta'anit, and this was called to my attention after last class by Ralph Dweck, the Gemara Masechet Ta'anit tells this interesting story. It's a story about Honi HaMe'agil. Now, Honi HaMe'agil was known in the Gemara, and the Gemara over there tells a miraculous story. He was a miracle worker. He was able to bring rain. But beyond the rain bringing of Honi HaMe'agil, he was furthermore, the Gemara tells, a part of a strange story. 
can't tell you the first one's not strange. But anyway, this one, the Gemara Masechet Ta'anit and Daf Gimal tells, and I'm not even going to read it fully inside because the details are for another time, but it tells how he falls asleep for 70 years. That's right, not to be taken literally, obviously. It's just not, not a reality that we could wrap our heads around. But unless he falls asleep for 70 years, and after waking up, the Gemara says he walks into the Midrash. That was his home away from home, or maybe that was his home. Maybe his actual home was a home away from home. And he walks in, and he notices that the people, he listens to the people, and they're bemoaning the fact that there's confusion, they don't know, and they're remembering, in the good old days, when Honi Agil was around, we heard, yeah, everything was good. We knew the answers to everything. He had the explanation. He was the miracle worker. He was the one most connected, in our words, to the source. He was the one, in our words, who had least forgetfulness. And he turns to them and says, hey, guys, that's me. I'm Honi Agil. I'm the one. And they listened to him. They didn't believe him. And they didn't respect him the way he needed. Now, reading between the lines, you don't think he then said, let me tell you the explanation to that halakha. I'll tell you the shi'ur properly. I'm putting it in there that he did. So why are they not listening to him? What happened over here? Rabbi Benny Lau, in his book, The Sages, in volume one, on page 67 to through 68, in source number 20, he writes the following. He says, the gravest thing of all, however, is that in the one place Honi calls home, the place where he is in his element, the study house, the Bemidrash, he's not even recognized. He hears his own name on the lips of others. How much light there was in the times of Honi when everything was loose and all the problems were solvable, when there was life without doubt and without questions. That's the life of Honi. From the student's benches, he hears the yearning for the days of old. At the very moment that he identifies himself as Honi, he finds himself rejected. They didn't believe him. The world, listen to the world words, has progressed another 70 years forward and distanced itself from the world of miracles. In a world accustomed to living in doubt, parentheses for us right now, much as ours, much as post-Luhot, much as the further you get away from a source, the more doubt, forgetfulness, quote-unquote, there is, there's no longer any room for Honi and his unique powers. It's like, ironically, having Moshe stand up in that class of Rabbi Akiva and say, well, let me explain it to you. Moshe, that's fantastic, and of course you're speaking truth. Of course you're speaking the epitome of truth. You are the embodiment of truth, but your words... Don't speak to the coordinates of our era. Not that you can't wrap it around it. And not that everything we're saying isn't tapping back into what you said. But when that rabbi gave the speech in the Knees, and you didn't know what he was talking about. And then you interpret it. Let me tell you how I really meant it. But that doesn't speak to me. And so what I'm doing is I'm taking your words and I'm reading my own life's messages into them. It's not false. And it's a little bit more distant. It's very relevant. It gave life to your words. He is forced to leave the study house, and consequently, the Gemara says to leave the world itself, to which he no longer belongs. Honi's world has died. In other words, the description again of Honi, according to our line of thought, is much along the same lines of anything and everything else we know with regards to relationships, with regards to achievements, with regards to knowledge. The more we constantly turn back to what was, the more we say, what was it only in the old country? Let me apply that to today. Not that we're not connected to the old country. That's why it's forget me not. But if I believe I'm living in the old country when I'm not, what do you mean you're not? Well, this is a second, not the Jara uh, Mabadef. You know, and I was like, no, but what do you mean? How come there's not the horse and buggy outside? 
no, no, we, we, we have cars today. You were someone from Harlov, came from 1852, you said. Would have no idea what we're talking about, but he's talking our traditions. That's right. Remember the example I gave in last class? I said, imagine my, the grandmother shows up, and she knows the traditions. She shows up at her son who's studying in yeshiva, let's say. So what's what's that thing on it? What's going on over here? All these books. And I remember my grandmother used to say about my father. She said when he started buying all those books, I thought there was something wrong with him. That's how I came from a religious family. She said, you know, she said I was married to all these books in the house for what reason? Now I'm filling in the gaps because she ultimately <laughs> speaking, she does tell this story. Uh, she used to tell this story. She said ultimately in a different way. I'll tell you how she used to say it, and then I'll interpret it. She said, but ultimately. Speaking, Speaking, when she was younger, everybody called her Dwayne Reed's sister. That was my grandmother, Dwayne Reed's sister, the Cone Boy's sister. She said, when I got older, I was Rabbi Harari's mother. Now, effectively, what she was saying was not only, but as well, that she took pride in her son, but I think she always felt connected to him as continuing who she was. She felt that he embodied, so certainly with different coordinates, with different interpretations. She was traditional, no doubt. But his then reflection of that traditionalism in the world that he was living in, in the one that he is leading, may have taken on a different form, but ultimately speaking, she took a pride in that. If she was so old-schooled, if she was the Honi through and through, if it's the Moshe who reappears, let's say, in the generation of Rabbi Akiva, the people, if it's the person from Halab who embodied truth, who knew the Safa and the traditions perfectly, but he's speaking in a different dimension and domain, not taking into account, for example, that we now have Damascus Jews and Lebanese Jews and even, dare I say it, Ashkenazim in the Knis. I mean, how are you going to deal with this? We have to now understand it's a new reality. Not that they're not working with tradition, but we need to state it in a different way. Okay, that being the case, I'd like to conclude the class with two examples in the domain of Halakha. I discussed these in an earlier class called, I think, Continuing the Oral Tradition. But I now think, and it was a similar message, different context, how do you like that? from coordinates than this one, but now you'll appreciate it hopefully through the prism of what we've been discussing. And the first one is, there's a Mishnah in Masechet Avot. The Mishnah in Masechet Avot in Perekimal has the following statement, Kol Any person that forgets anything from their study, The Pasuk almost says that you're Hayav Mitah, scary thought. Now, of course, the Mephashim say it's only if you are negligent in remembering the Torah and so forth. But is that relevant to us today? Really so? Let's say I'm negligent. Let's say I don't do the hazara. I don't concentrate enough. Famously, well, before that, the Gemara Masech Menachot and Dafsaditet repeats this. Resh Lakish in different words. Kol Meshakeh Tavar Echad Mitalmudo Over Belav. You might not be Mitayev Menachot, but you violated a positive command or a negative commandment prohibition in the Torah. Hisham Elachash Menachot Meod Pentishkach Et Hadevarim. That's the pasuk of Maamad Har Sinai. You better not forget it. If you forget it, you're violating a mandate commandment from the Torah. Says famously in source number 23, Rabbi Chaim Velazhani says that's not relevant to us any longer. Why is that relevant to us any longer? He said that's specifically when we were developing the Masoret. When Torah Shba'alpeh was taking form, if you forgot it, you understand what you were doing? You were potentially ruining our continued tradition. But now that it's done, now that it's in place, there's no longer that violation. What do you mean? Why not? 
we're allowed to forget Torah, you're still not allowed to forget Torah, but the violation and the fear and the trepidation of forgetting is no longer, why not? The answer is because the Masoret has been solidified and the interpretation in turn is less dangerous for you to forget it. Forgetting it ironically, what you studied means the next time I study it, I now appropriately uh, inter interpret it based on new coordinates, based on the way it speaks to me today. My father's rabbi, Rabbi Soloveitchik, used to say, and this is well known, and my father told it to me, and I've read it afterwards. He used to say to the students in the class, when they would quote him what he, what he said the last time they learned that sugya, he would say to them, rip up your books. I'm gonna rip up our books. Forget about what I said in the past. Forget about it, it was beautiful. Forget about that. We need to learn that anew. He was now speaking to them based on, with the life of, his moment then, being able to apply it based on their understanding in that moment. He was giving it life. He was breathing that life into it. That, in my mind, is so significant. I remember once reading the book uh, by Michael Lewis, The Undoing Project. He was describing the, the two, um, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, who were Nobel winners uh, in Israel. And he described how one of them was fascinated by forgetfulness and how it aids our creativity. It's very much this point. To be By the way, I should. I'd be amiss in telling you that everyone agrees with this. Source number 25, his Halichot Olam quotes this as well and very clear about this. Of course, Chacham Vadya Yosef, you know his personality in Pesach Kalacha. He's not going to side with Keterosh, with Rab Chaim Velazhin on this. He sides with Shohanaru Kharav, the, the, the Alter Rebbe of Lubavitch, that this is applicable even today. Okay, I'm not telling you to follow this Halacha, but I am giving you a certain perspective on how we could say that law is no longer as binding in the same fashion as it once was. It's important for us to remember we need to be connected to the tradition. However, it's only when we're developing the Masoret. Once the Masoret is in place, it's now, sometimes, there's a healthy forgetfulness. To be steadfast at the expense of being creative is not necessarily positive. Along the same lines, the Gemara Masechet Horayot, which we cited two classes ago, describes the Mahloka between Rav Yosef and Rabbah. The question is whether you should be a Sinai or an Oker Harim. Remember this one, the Gemara and Horayot and Dafyo Dalit. Rav Yosef was the Sinai. He was the one who had the breadth of knowledge. Rabbah was the Oker Harim. And the Gemara seems to conclude that Rav Yosef was the ideal one, the one who had the breadth of knowledge, not the one who was per se creative, who exerted Binah as opposed to Chokmah, the one with the encyclopedic knowledge, with the breadth of knowledge, with what we might call history as opposed to memory, if you want to use those words. The one who doesn't forget the first Luchot as opposed to the second. Any of those analogies you want to mention, that's what the Gemara seems to say. The interesting thing is, in source number 28, Rabbi Shalomo Kluger suggests that that was once a reality, but now that we have books, that's right, now that we have books, uh, that reality, that halakha is no longer in place because to have the breadth of knowledge, to have the encyclopedic knowledge is necessary if I don't have an encyclopedia. If I have an encyclopedia, which is right there in front of me, it might no longer be the value. Instead, I might need to be learning how to interpret it. I've said it more than once because I'm learning it from the professional development days that I so dread in the school, but we're told continuously that education today is altogether different than it was even 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago. Why so? Because today information is accessible. The books 
the information no longer even in books is at the fingertips of your phone, of your device, of your tablet, whatever it is. So we're no longer preaching and hoping that the students will per se memorize that information, be the Sinai, because the Sinai no longer is as much a value. Instead, we want them to interpret it. We need to teach them instead how to live by it, how to incorporate it into their lives, how to apply it accordingly. So to speak, we need to, instead of preach history and remembering, we need to instead tell them, forget that a bit. Keep that as part of your structure but interpret it within the context and contours of your life. Chacham Ovadia Yosef, needless to say, disagrees with this as well. In his Yabia Omen, source number 29, in which he claims, even today, Sinai is Adiv. And of course, that will be a debate. Yes, Victor. So, would it be correct to say that it's, it's, it's not that it's forget or forget me not, it's that it's about how to really apply. You should never forget you should learn everything in the history and all of that, know it, and just apply it accordingly. Absol- too much Absolutely. I'm going to tell you why I call it forgetting. Okay? I, I, I said you this right. You should actually forget. The, Absolutely. The forget is with a quote-unquote forget. Right? It's quote-unquote. Just, just use it in the following fashion. You went to the class, and you're a very binary, static, and rigid thinker. And the rabbi said X, Y, and Z in the class. And you come home and you say, the rabbi said that on Shabbat morning, he said in his kitchen, he has a blue washing cup, and he walks to the and he says, Ma or honey, we need a blue washing cup. Why do we need a blue? That's what the rabbi said. Now, the rabbi is describing what's in, in his home. That doesn't mean you have a blue washing cup. And so, and he, the rabbi said, it's the braided bread at the table. Honey, no longer can we have pita bread. Why can't we have it? In other words, the forgetfulness is not, let me do away with what was said. It's instead, don't be stuck. Again, along the same lines of there's the picture. That's how we started the class. It'll be a good way of us concluding the class and putting it full circle. It's The picture is one thing, but the picture has the ability to get me stuck in it. I now see and vision God is just that. I have a picture of him. I, I created, fash- I fashioned Godliness. I have my God pictures all over the world or walls. So you say to me, who's God? I say, is that? So close your eyes and imagine. I can't close my eyes and imagine differently? What do you mean? Listen to the words of the script. Oh, listen to the word. What are you talking about? I have my pictures. It's about being able to, yes, be, be imaginative. So don't create the pictures. Keep Absolutely them. not. Just Keep them. But understand. Ignore, but yes, quote unquote. Again, in terms of its practicality, beyond just halacha, which is significant in and of itself, beyond understanding of Torah and development of, of halachic thought which is significant in and of itself. It's a question in a very practical way, sometimes intuitive, unfortunately sometimes neglected way, relationship with others, with yourself. How do you develop yourself? Do you become the person who says, this is my regimen, this is my schedule, this is how I do things? How many times have we met the person? Do we know the individual who says, this is how I do things? You can't do it my way, I can't do it my way, I'm out. What do you mean you're out? You had the opportunity for growth. The example I gave in two classes ago, whatever, was Blockbuster. Blockbuster were doing fantastic. Blockbuster, as a child, people would go to the store and, and rent a video. And, and they, were, they were booming. And then the world changed, and there was this yeah, thing called streaming. 
Now they said, but we're going to stick by what we know. We have a picture. We'll show you the statistics. We'll get stuck in the numbers and show you how we're going to progress with doing it exactly as we know it. But if you didn't grow horizontally in this context, if you weren't able to develop, develop while keeping, we're still doing videos, we're still doing movies, we're still doing all that stuff, but we're seeing it differently. We're listening to what's going on. It's keeping up with the times, understanding it according to the new coordinates. It's your relationship with yourself, with others, and certainly with God. To forget in that context, with that understanding, is to be healthy. Is to understand that I need to continue this by understanding that I'm not stuck in it. To forget altogether, that's why we call the class Forget Me Not, is unhealthy as well, because now I'm not grounded in anything. If Rabbi Akiva wasn't quoting the words of Moshe, then what is he quoting? He's making up a new religion. So on the one hand, he's quoting the words of Moshe. Ironically, Moshe, who's the source of it, who's connected to that source of God, can't understand it, because as we developed and discussed, Moshe is Temunat Hashem Yabit. He sees it in front of him. As a result, he's almost angelic in that respect. He's removed from the people in that, in, that, in that vision and understanding of it. Rabbi Akiva can claim and say those words. Moshe can even be relieved. Why are you relieved, Moshe? What are you relieved? You didn't know what he was talking about. Again, you came back to me and you said, Rabbi, here's how I told your speech. And you start, excuse me, before you tell me, you said, let me tell you what I told at the table today. And you tell me some story you told at the table. I said, it's a very strange story. I don't know what you're talking about. He said, no, 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 no. I finished the, speech, the, the t- table talk and I said, and that's what Rabbi Harari said in his speech today. And I feel good all of a sudden. Why do I feel good? That's not at all what I said. It's because that was your application of what I said. Now, I was in a different stratosphere, not because I'm greater, I'm thinking in the stars. You brought it into this world. You were able to preach it and teach it to your children. You were able to be that Rabbi Akiva in that circumstance. That, in my mind, is the challenge that behooves each of us to live up to and to overcome, to be able to, on the one hand, keep ourselves staunched in the tradition, to be able to forget me not, while at the same time keeping it alive, keeping it relevant, finding its relevancy within the coordinates of time and space that we live in and that we develop ourselves as individuals, as a community, and as a nation within. Baruch Amen, Amen.